Good morning. Uh, it's good to see half your faces. I don't know who's been here and who hasn't been here. Uh, so we kind of have said the same thing each service each week uh, because we don't know who's heard it yet. But um, there is a live, uh, well, it's not live, it's being recorded live, but these people will see this uh, sermon next Sunday. I know that's weird, but um, there's people who are being uh, tuned in because of the, what's being videoed. Um, and so I've been told many times, don't forget about them, don't forget about them, whatever that means. But I'm, it's hard for me not to just engage with uh, you beautiful people here, but I'm going to try to look at cameras uh, and, and act like there's other people with us, um, because there are. So welcome Midtown Home Church, welcome people watching virtually, welcome people listening uh, online. Um, it, is, it is strange, just like Joe said uh, in the call to worship, it's strange to be in a season where the church is this scattered, but if we study church history, if we study biblical history, um, we know that in every season that the Lord has ever scattered his people, um, he has always scattered them in order to gather them in new ways. And so we don't know uh, what's happening or how that might happen, but we know what the Lord has always been up to uh, in seasons that we don't understand. He's always scattering that he might gather, uh, that he might draw more people to himself. So in that light, for these five weeks, these first five weeks of live services, we are doing a mini-series. We're on week three right now. We're doing a mini-series uh, on the priesthood of the believer. And the priesthood of the believer is this terminology that Midtown didn't invent. Uh, the priesthood of the believer is a terminology that we stole from Scripture. That all throughout Scripture, from Old Testament to New, um, the Lord has called for his people, has longed for his people, has intended for his people to be priests to the world. On Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, God says through Moses to his people that it is my intention for you that you would be a kingdom of priests. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, which we're about to read as our passage for today, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Lord says to his people, uh, it is my intention for you that you be a royal priesthood to the world. And then from Joe's call to worship in Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 5 and chapter 20, there's many times in the book of Revelation at the end of the story that the Lord is uh, concluding the history of time and he's saying, my people who are a kingdom of priests to me, that I've made for myself a kingdom of priests, that literally from beginning to end, God's intention for his people is that they would be priests to the world. And so we're studying that um, not as an arbitrary, random, biblical idea to, to unpack for five weeks, we're studying the idea of what does it mean that God's people are to be priests of the world because we're so scattered and, and this is so not normal and what are we supposed to be doing and how is the church supposed to function in a season that is difficult? How is the church supposed to see themselves? How is the church supposed to behave and believe in the world? And if we, if we can kind of refocus and retune our understanding to come back to this biblical idea that the Lord has intended for his people to be priests to the world, that actually guides us in a season where nothing seems to make any sense. That it doesn't actually matter what's going on in the world. Actually, because of what's going on in the world, God's people are called to be priests to the world. So what does that mean? Well, a helpful definition that we've been using the last couple weeks um, as kind of a baseline, it's certainly not exhaustive uh, on, on the biblical definition of, of a priest uh, or the priesthood of all believers. But is this, is that a priest is someone who has access to God's special presence and then invites others into that presence. A priest is someone who has access to God's special presence 
and then invites others into that presence. So we're looking at this idea that God's people are called to be priests to the world, and priests are those that have access to God's special presence, and they are to invite others into that presence. And so we started a few weeks ago looking at the, the, the first priest in the first temple, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were the first priests in the first temple, and they were, they were mandated by God to bring as many people into that joy and that delight of the garden, and then they failed. So we needed a second Adam, a new priest, Jesus, to come and restore what was lost in the garden. And then last week we looked at the call of Abraham, uh, when God started for himself a people uh, after the fall that he called for Abraham. He said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you into something, and I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. That's what priests do, is they become a blessing to the world. So we're starting to understand this idea, and then today we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. This is kind of a theme verse for the whole series, but it's going to lay another, another piece of the foundation for us as we understand this idea that God has called his people to be priests to the world. So read with me um, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Um, if you don't have a Bible, just trust me. It might be on the screen. I don't know, actually. Is it on the screen? Great. Thanks, Allie. Peter says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's the word of the Lord. So, um, what was just read, those seven verses in 1 Peter, uh, has challenged uh, scholars and interpreters uh, almost since the day it was written. Not because uh, it's, it's unable to be understood, but because maybe more than anywhere else in the entire New Testament, Peter overloads that one section, those seven verses, with almost too many Old Testament references. It's almost hard to peel back all the layers and go, what exactly does Peter want us to know here? Because he seems to just be dropping line after line after line. That's these loaded terms. And what is he actually trying to say? No less than 25 references, Old Testament references, are in these seven verses. And one scholar said that this passage presents one of the most dense constellations of Old Testament imagery in the entire New Testament. Meaning, what Peter just said in those seven verses, if you were having a hard time following along, you're not alone, that it's hard to actually fully grasp what Peter was actually trying to say because he's saying so much. Peter takes a semi-truck full of Old Testament imagery and dumps it all into this passage. And all these Old Testament bombs that he drops on the church, he's saying to the church, he's telling the church, this is who you are now, this is who you are because of Jesus, and it's all rooted in who God said his people were in the Old Testament. And he gives too many almost to be understood, but he's saying all of the greatest things that were true about God's people in the Old Testament are now true for you, church, in the New Testament. 
And one of the main ones that he says, and he repeats it in verse 5 and in verse 9, is what we're going to study. It's the, it's the one Old Testament uh, image, it's the one Old Testament illustration or allegory that we're going to pluck out and study. He says it twice. He says in verse 5 and verse 9, you're a holy priesthood and you're a royal priesthood. And so in this passage where God is talking through Peter to his people to say, you're a holy priesthood, you're a royal priesthood, what does that mean? Peter then begins to give another Old Testament image to try to explain what does it mean that you're a priest? What does it mean that you're a priesthood? He says, royal priests of God, you're like this other thing. Royal priesthood of God, you are kind of like this other thing from the Old Testament. And what is it? He says it here in verse 5. He says, you also, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. You also, like living stones, royal priesthood, are being built into a spiritual house. That term right there, spiritual house, is literally a temple of the Spirit. You church, you priesthood, are being built into a temple. So no one that understood Old Testament imagery, no one that understood Old Testament history who was reading Peter's letter would have missed this point. No one would have missed the gravity of what Peter just said when he said, hey church, not only are you a priesthood, you're a priesthood that's being built into a temple. Peter just told the church that they are being built into the most central physical structure in all of the Old Testament. It would be like telling a high school garage band that they're being built into the Ryman. Like, wait, 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 what, that, no, that, that's too much. That, like, I will never make it. That's not, Certainly, you couldn't be talking about the temple, right, Peter? The temple was the most sacred physical space in the entire Jewish universe. Nothing was more holy than the temple. Nothing was more majestic than the temple. Nothing was more sacred than the temple. And now Peter says to the church, church, royal priesthood of believers, you're being built into that. Have you ever wondered, if if you know anything about the Old Testament, God's people in the Old Testament, have you ever wondered why in the New Testament God never commands his New Testament people, the church, God never issues for them, God never orders them to build a temple, to build a new physical structure for the church? See, because in every season of God's people, since Abraham, in every season of God's people, God has always called for his people to build him a house. In Moses' time, in the wilderness, God calls for his people to build him a tabernacle. This is the place where I want to come dwell. I want you, with all these details and with all this majesty, to build me a dwelling place in the wilderness. And then God's people finally get to the promised land, and they settle down, and they conquer it through Joshua, and then they get a kingdom, and David is the king, and then David's son Solomon is commanded as king. He says, I want you to build for me a majesty of a house. I want you to build for me a temple in Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, but Solomon builds this incredible temple in Jerusalem up on the hill. And then after God's people are taken captive, they're taken to Babylon. When they come back from Babylon, the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. When they come back from Babylon, God commands Ezra as the leader of God's people at that time, on their return to Jerusalem, rebuild my temple. At every major point in the Old Testament, God says to his people, build me a house that I can come dwell with you. Build me a place for me to come dwell. But not once in the New Testament, after Jesus, are God's people ever commanded to build God a house. Why is that? 
Why is it that at every major point in the Old Testament, God's people are commanded to build him a house, but never, not once in the New Testament or beyond, are God's people commanded to build him a house? And here's what Peter is saying. This is what Peter is trying to pull into our understanding, is that church, you, the people, are the new temple. You don't need a physical building like I did in the Old Testament because you are now the temple. I'm building you into the temple. I'm building you into a spiritual house. Now, that may not affect you the way that it affected these first readers, but this is what Peter is saying. The Lord is building you, the royal priesthood, into a temple. So what does that all mean? And again, we're like kind of mixing metaphors, but they're not just metaphors, they're real. Is that, hey, you are a royal priesthood, and royal priesthood, you're being built into a temple. So what does it mean that the royal priesthood of God's people is being built into a temple? One of the most important things it means is that since you are a temple, everything about you is sacred. See, the temple is where, in the Old Testament, is where heaven and earth met. It was literally God's dwelling place. The temple in the Old Testament is where heaven and earth met. See, we tend to think of heaven as this other place, like this place that is up there and far up there on the clouds, and it's this other place that we will go to one day. And by the way, none of that is biblical. <laughs> We're not talking about that today, but that's maybe coming in a future sermon. But this, this idea that, that heaven is this other place, that understanding that heaven was this other place that, we, that would never overlap with earth, this idea that heaven was this other place that would never become unified with the world, with the creation, was not the biblical understanding. The idea that heaven is up there and separate from us was not true in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> where heaven and earth met. And the idea that heaven and earth could never overlap was not true in the temple. In fact, it's what made the temple so holy to begin with is that the temple is where heaven and earth were colliding. The temple was God's dwelling place. And because this was God's dwelling place, because the temple was where heaven and earth were not separate, it was sacred. It was holy. Because the Old Testament people of God understood this sacredness about this physical place, they understood the sacredness of the temple. Every practice at the temple, every ritual at the temple, every ceremony performed at the temple was sacred. And guess who were the gatekeepers of making sure that everyone understood the temple is sacred and everything that happens here is sacred? Priests. Priests were the ones entrusted with making sure that every step, every action taken at the temple was separate because they understood heaven and earth are not separate here. This is a sacred place. Peter here is saying heaven and earth weren't separate in the garden, heaven and earth weren't separate in the temple, and now church, heaven and earth aren't separate in you either. Because just like in the garden and just like in the temple, the Lord is with you. The Lord is in you, which means everything about you is sacred, and I am not using um, hyperbole to try to make a point. Every meal you eat, every conversation you have, every game you play, every home church you host, thanks guys, every small group you attend, every book you read, every dishwasher you load, everything about you is sacred, because in you The spirit of the living God dwells, and where the Lord dwells is sacred. This is where heaven and earth meet. Paul says this many, many times in the New Testament. Peter's not the only one. You are the temple. 
Do you view your life that way? And I don't mean do you view your life that you, you should be so scared that God's watching you and he's always making sure you don't go see R-rated movies. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about do you understand that because the Lord dwells in you, everything about your life is sacred? You have never done an ordinary thing. Everything about you is sacred, which means when you leave here and you go get takeout somewhere and you go have, have lunch with friends, it is a sacred meal that you're experiencing because the Lord is there, because you're the temple. The temple was sacred, and the priesthood of God's people is being built into the new temple. This sacred temple of the Spirit is us. And that should change the way we view how we handle ourselves all the time. Again, not to scare us into something, but to sober us into something. That you've never had an ordinary conversation. You've, you've never dealt with somebody that is not a sacred moment. You've never gone somewhere and the Spirit of the Lord isn't with you. So this beginning to understand, this little window of what Peter is trying to say, that we're being built into this spiritual house of the temple Okay, Elliot, maybe we can understand a little bit of that, that it's the sacred, holy thing, and we are that new sacred, holy thing. Who's this house for? Meaning, who's invited into this sacred house? If we're actually being built into this sacred house, and we are the new temple of the Lord, who's invited into the temple? Who gets to come into the temple of the church? Who, who's, who's this house being built for? One of the original intentions for the temple in the Old Testament is that it was meant to be an extravagant display of who the Lord was to the world. The temple was the revelation to the world of who the God of the Jews was. His glory, his majesty, his saving work on behalf of his people The temple was meant to be this place that shone forth for all to see like a billboard. It was shining for the world with all of its splendor and all of its glory. It was on display for all the world to see just who this Yahweh was. And so when King Solomon decides to build this temple, when King Solomon decides it's time and the Lord has made it very clear, Solomon, I want you to build my permanent dwelling place in Israel, Solomon knows this is not just meant to be like my little hut This is actually meant to be extravagant beyond your wildest imaginations because it's showing to the world something that's true about God. If you're meant to build something that's showing the world who God is, you probably don't get your supplies from Home Depot. Solomon enlists kings from around the world to send him gold and send him wood and send him materials from all over. Like he... It's like when people are custom building houses here and they could go get their marble for their countertops over off Thompson Lane somewhere or they can have it shipped from Italy. This is how Solomon is approaching this. In fact, Solomon gets so meticulous and so extravagant with the building of this temple, it takes him over seven years to build, which is just slightly longer it's taking them to build this cafe right next door. I don't know what they're doing over there. It better be a temple, but it's taking a while. And so there, there's, this, there's this idea that Solomon knows this, this is, we're, not, we're, not, we're not joking here. This is meant to display to the nations who God is. The modern equivalent of how much money Solomon spent to build the temple in Jerusalem would be over $100 million today. He's saying, I, I want the world to see the splendor of who God is because that is one of the original goals of the temple. And it happens. 
Queens and kings come from all over the world to see this magnificent piece of art and wonder. The temple was meant to show the world the glory of Israel's God, that he is so radiant and so majestic that he would actually have this majestic building draw people to it, that they would come and wonder and they would go, who is this God? Zeus doesn't get a, a, a temple like this. The gods of Egypt, Ra, the sun god, doesn't get a temple like this. Who is this God? The temple was a billboard for the world to see. It's a little bit, if you, if you were around last week or if you've seen last week's sermon, it's a little bit like Abraham, who we were told was blessed by God in order to be a blessing. Like Abraham, I'm blessing you so that you can show the world what I'm like. I'm not just blessing you for your sake. I'm blessing you extravagantly so that you can actually show the world who I am and what I'm like. Same thing as here. The extravagance of the temple was not meant to be an end in and of itself. It was meant to show something. It was meant to show the world who the God of Israel was. And so now, again, that's a very brief understanding of how an Old Testament person would have understood the temple. And Peter takes that, that understanding of the Old Testament temple and he says, it's true for you too, church. Not only is your life sacred and everything about your life holy, your life now exists as a display for the king of kings. What are you to be displaying and who are you displaying that for? You now represent the Lord to the world for the sake of the world. You now are on display to draw people in. You now are on display that people would come and go, what is going on with the God of those people? Because they're different they don't, they don't behave the same, world, the, the same way the world behaves. They, they have joy that I don't, know what, I don't know where they find that. There's something extravagant about what they're doing, and I want to know more about the God that they represent. That's the point of the temple, and that's the point of the church, that we don't exist just for the sake of ourselves. We exist to show the world something. We exist to be a billboard for something. The church exists to display to the world who our God is and to draw more people into that. Or in the words of Archbishop William Temple from the 1940s, the church is the only organization in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Like this, this is the point of the church, is that we would, we would say, yes, we're called to be something. Yes, our lives are sacred. Yes, our lives are holy. But we are called to display something majestic and wonderful to the world so that we can draw them in. We exist for their good and for their sake. We don't just exist for our sake. This royal priesthood who is being built into the temple exists for the benefit of the world to bring heaven and earth wherever they go and to draw those who are far off and who would see it. So, who's invited in? Who's this spiritual house for? Everyone. It's meant to include people that you don't like. It's meant to include people. The invitation is meant to include people who are not like you at all. And in fact, part of, part of that drawing in of everyone, part of that drawing in of people who you can't stand or who you disagree with, part of the drawing in of everyone where people who would disagree about a thousand other things can come together and go, but we love each other and we're actually for each other is part of the wonder that will draw people into it. The one who is building this spiritual house is longing for the people who are made into that house to draw all people into that house. In the book of Luke, Jesus tells a parable that gets at this idea just a little bit. 
Jesus tells a parable about a king that throws this great banquet. And a king throwing a banquet, you want to be at that party, right? When your rich friends throw parties, if they're the cool kind of rich people, you want to be there, right? And so this king is throwing this banquet, and he sets this feast, and he sets this table, and he sends invites out to all the townspeople, and nobody comes. He's going, okay, his servants come back, and they're like, well, what are we supposed to do? And he goes, just, just go find people. Go tell, I, I want anybody to come to this party. I'm just throwing a party. I want to share my joy with everybody. And they go out and invite some more people, and people are too busy, or they've got jobs, and they say they can't come. Literally, they go, I, I got stuff to do. I can't go enjoy that joy. And so then they come back to the king, and they go, what do you want us to do? And he goes, go out and find the sick and the lame and the poor and the crippled and the blind. Find them and tell them I'm throwing them a party. So they go out and they find all the sick and all the lame and all the poor and all the blind, and, and those people all come. You better believe they're ready to party. And they come in, and they, and they start feasting, and the servants come back to the king, and they go, there's still room at the table. And he goes, all right, go to the far country. Go, go out into distant lands and bring everybody in. I'm throwing a party, and I want my joy to be spread. I want the glory of this table to be feasted on by anybody who would come. And the point of the parable is this. That's how the parable ends, is they're going out to find more people. The point of the parable is this, is that the host of the banquet, the one who's setting the table, is, an, is a very inviting God. He's actually throwing a party for anybody who would come and feast. Come and eat at my table. Come and take part in my joy. The persistence of the host of the banquet. He, he is dead set on filling up his table. And priests, priesthood of the believer, royal priests of the church, you're being built into a house that exists at the intersection of heaven and earth. You're being built into a house that exists at the intersection of the mundane and the holy. And you exist as a house to display to the world who your host is of the banquet feast. And you are meant to invite people to the banquet of the king. You are meant to woo people and draw in as many people who would come and feast at your king's table. So again, that, that, it's another just very brief picture. The temple is, is a place that was sacred above all else. Church, you are sacred above all else. The temple existed as a display to draw the nations in, to draw more people in. Church, you exist to draw people in, to show people who your God is. And so with that brief picture in mind, what exactly happens in that house? Like, what exactly is going on in the house? Have you ever, like, driven by a, a house where all these cars are, like, piled in the front yard, and you're going, there's a lot of people in there. It seems like they're having a lot of fun. What is going on in there, and why am I not invited? That's just what Enneagram 7s say. Fours don't say that. Fours go, I bet I don't deserve to be invited. I'm so sad. I'm kidding. Sorry. That's, don't, don't run away with that. But so th there's this party going on. What's going on inside the house? One of the actions of the house, Peter here tells us two things that's going on inside that sacred house that's meant to draw people in. What's going on? Two things. One thing Peter tells us in verse 5. He says this, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Those are the two images. You're being built into a, 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 holy, a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So one of the things that's going on in the house is the offering of spiritual sacrifices. What does that mean? Well, it may fill your head with Old Testament imagery of the sacrificial system, and you may think that's antiquated. We'll talk some about that next week, I hope. I haven't written that sermon yet, but that's the plan. 
But Peter here is not talking about physical sacrifices. He is using that imagery of sacrifices, but he's not talking about physical sacrifices. He says it. You're offering spiritual sacrifices, meaning things that go on in your spirit, things that go on in your heart. He's talking about what's going on inside of you that is offering a sacrifice. And just like physical sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices are things that may cost you something. Spiritual sacrifices may feel like they're killing you, but ultimately they are for your good. They are actually setting you free. And when Peter here says that the church, that the, the, the royal priesthood of God's people that's being built into a temple, that inside that temple the people of God offer spiritual sacrifices, that terminology of spiritual sacrifices, sacrifices of the heart, is not something that would have been foreign, a foreign idea to God's people in the Old Testament. Because many, 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 many times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but many times in the Old Testament, um, God does talk about physical sacrifices and they're needed and, and we'll get into some of that. But many other times he says, but those physical sacrifices aren't all there is. There's actually sacrifices of the heart that I'm after. Actually, the sacrifices of the heart are the things that I'm more after than physical sacrifices. Listen to how King David says it in Psalm 51. And, and again, Peter is talking about this when he says spiritual sacrifices in 1 Peter 2. That these are the kinds of sacrifices that happen spiritually in the new temple of God's royal priesthood. Psalm 51, David says this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Okay, is it possible that one of the things going on in the house that would make people drive by the house and say, what is going on over there? I want to be a part of that party. I want to go to that banquet. Is it possible that one of the things going on inside the house that would draw people into this new temple is a broken spirit? That the thing that you have to offer God is the acknowledgement and the conviction that you don't have anything to offer God. Is it possible that the thing that will draw your neighbor into this house is the spirit inside of you that's willing to admit that you are way worse than they think you are and you are way worse than you have tried to convince them that you are? Is it possible that the beckoning, the wooing that will bring the lame and the sick and the poor and the blind into this house is the admission that you are actually all of those things too. That a broken spirit is the sacrifice of the heart that God's people participate in. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. But I have to pause here because we Christians have to be very, very careful about not speaking Christianese. Meaning, we Christians have to be very careful about not speaking a language, not just speaking words that don't actually have any meaning. Because, see, if, I were to, if, if you're a Christian and I were to ask you, um, hey, are you broken? You would go, yes, I'm, I'm terribly imperfect. I don't have it all together. It's almost like we know that's the right answer. It's almost like we're, we know we're supposed to say that. And so we know we're, we're, it would be arrogant of us to not admit that we have a broken spirit. But if I were to ask you for an example of your broken spirit from the last 24 hours, you may have a hard time admitting that. You may have a hard time coming up with, I mean, I know I have a broken spirit, but I've done pretty good for the last couple days. 
Or if I were to ask you about, hey, tell me about how your spirit is broken. Tell me about what's not right about you. Tell me what's broken about you. That what you would maybe tend to do is find an example from the last couple of days that's acceptable and justifiable. Like we tend to admit the things that are, that, that is, that are breaking us. We tend to admit the things that cause a broken spirit in us only if those things are understandable and acceptable from the people that we're talking to. Like, man, I got really mad in traffic. Okay, okay, that's not what David was talking about. That's not what Peter's talking about. The Bible leaves no room for people to just speak Christian language and not actually mean it. The Bible makes no time for such garbage. The spiritual house that God is building that draws people into himself, that offers spiritual sacrifices that woo the nations in, is for real sinners with real problems and real issues and real doubts and real pain and real scars. Because only those people know that they have a real Savior. And if you offer that to your world, if you offer spiritual sacrifices to your world, it's going to feel like death which is exactly what sacrifices feel like. It's gonna feel like you're dying inside because of the thing that you've tried to build and I've tried to build for so long, which is I know I'm broken, but I don't actually wanna admit it. I know I'm broken because that's what I'm supposed to say, but I spend a lot of energy trying to convince myself I'm not that broken. Sacrifices feel like they're killing us. And again, do you know how often sacrifices in the Old Testament were offered? Do you know how often that priests offered sacrifices in the Old Testament? Every day. Sometimes multiple times a day, there was offering of sacrifices in the temple. And Peter here says, just like priests in the temple, you're being built into this new spiritual house and you offer spiritual sacrifices. Maybe multiple times a day, it would be good for you to offer spiritual sacrifices. And that is part of the glory of the temple. It is the aroma of the banquet table. It's what causes people to want and come and feast with us. Which leads us to the last thing, and the, the second thing, and the last thing we'll say, the last part of this sermon, the second thing that's going on at this house party, the second thing that's going on at this banquet feast that would draw people in. We offer spiritual sacrifices, and then he says this other thing in verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That you may declare the praises of him. Some translations say that you may declare the wonders of him. All of this, all of this building into a a new spiritual house, a new spiritual temple, all of this royal priesthood language, all of this drawing people into the house, all of this shame being removed at the banquet table, all of, all of this is because in the new temple, the people of God may declare the wonders of him who called us. Why, why would the members of God's new spiritual house, why would the members of God's new temple declare his praises, declare his wonders? Well, simply put, we declare the praises of things that are precious to us. I don't have to tell anyone in here to declare the wonders of the latest Netflix show you've been watching because you love telling people about things that you love. 
We all declare the wonders. We all declare the praises. We all share the joy of the things that bring us joy. And there's this really interesting repeated word. If you're trying to figure out what a passage means in in Scripture, look for the repetitions. And there's this really interesting repeated word in this passage. It's repeated three times, and it's the word precious. Precious, precious, precious. Two times, and we'll get to this, two times it's talking about how precious God finds Jesus. And then one time it's talking about how precious the royal priesthood finds Jesus. So what does it mean to find something precious? Well, literally it means to find something valuable, almost invaluable. Meaning things that are precious to you don't really have a price tag. Things that are truly precious, not just things that you want, things that are precious to you. Things that your heart holds dear can't have money signs next to it because you don't really care about the money on it. You just know, I love that. I love it. I have to have it. I want to be near it. Things that are precious to us dominate our mind and capture our heart. Now, certainly, to find something precious can destroy us. Ask Gollum. See, because we were made to find something precious that I don't really have to tell you to go find in something precious. If you told me how you spent your week, I could tell you what you find precious. Because we're going to spend our time and we're going to spend our money and we're going to spend our energy towards the things that we find precious. We were made to crave something. We were made to long for something. We were made to adore something. And many of the things that we find precious end up poisoning us. But Peter here says, this is one of the uses of the words precious, In this passage, he says that for the royal priesthood of God's people that are being built into this spiritual house, this temple, those that live in that spiritual house find the cornerstone of that house, Jesus. They find that cornerstone precious. The cornerstone, Jesus, is precious to them. So how does Jesus become the precious thing for the royal priesthood? How does Jesus become precious to our hearts How would we begin to declare the wonders of Jesus and find him precious? Well, in the opening line, there's there's another use of the word precious. And it's subtle, but it's nearly inconceivable what what Peter says here about God's people. It's nearly superlative in such a way that it, it would be almost too good not to be true. And it's subtle. You, you, you would miss it if you just read through it. Listen to what he says, he, this, this thing that Peter says that's precious. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You also. I need to explain this like almost grammatically what's going on. Because Peter just said in the opening lines that Jesus, the living stone, the cornerstone of this new spiritual house, he was rejected by men, he was rejected by humans, but he was precious to the Lord. And then he says, you also. That's true for you also. Meaning, the thing that the Lord just said is true about Jesus is true about you too. The thing that Peter just said is true about Jesus is true about you too. You also As you come to him, Jesus, who was rejected but precious to God, is true for you too. Jesus, rejected by everybody but precious to God. Church, rejected but precious to God. 
Essentially, Peter just said this, and this, this, is, this is almost like cosmically too much to bear. Peter just said that the amount that God finds Jesus precious is the same amount he finds you precious. Do you know how valuable and precious Jesus is to God? This is a little bit of like Trinitarian theology, and I don't want to bore you with the ivory tower, but listen to this. The Bible says very clearly that since before time began, since before the foundation of the world, Jesus has been precious to God the Father. That the Father has eternally, like from eternity past, always found the Son precious. Before Jesus did anything, before Jesus accomplished anything, before Jesus ever came to earth to give his life and be resurrected and ascend back to the Father, before any of that, God, found, God the Father found God the Son precious. The Father has always found the Son precious. Separate from what he's done, or separate from his accomplishments, or separate from his failures, which Jesus had none. And then Peter here has the audacity to say, the same is true for you, royal priesthood. You also. Priesthood of the church, you also. Are precious to the Lord. Yes, church, we find Jesus precious. But it is only because first, in Christ, God has found us as precious as he finds Jesus. Jesus is precious to us because we are precious to him. And we declare the wonders of things we find precious. And so, as those who find Jesus precious, we now see our lives as sacred and holy We are being built into a spiritual house to make room at the banquet for all people. And yes, we offer spiritual sacrifices of our brokenness and we declare the wonders of our Jesus, of who he is and what he's done. And we're precious to him. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we find many other things precious But you have called us holy and you have called us sacred and you have made us to be a billboard to the world to draw people into the party. And so um, give us courage, uh, give us joy in the offering of spiritual sacrifices that we would be unafraid to admit just how broken we are and that our God delights in a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Guide us in that, and as we do that, lead us in declaring the wonders of Jesus, who in spite of our brokenness finds us precious still. We love you. In your name, amen.